0: Amen, amen. Genesis 43 tonight as we continue our series looking at the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And let's be reminded that God is doing many things at the same time. God can accomplish many different purposes at the same time. And God isn't just working through a famine. God isn't just working in a particular family. God is laying the foundation for a nation. God is laying the foundation for his chosen people here. And that's why God is taking so much time and so much effort beyond the fact that he's going to feed millions of people in Egypt, besides the fact that he's moving his people from Canaan to Egypt, He is also, more than anything, in the business of changing hearts. He needs to change Joseph's heart and he needs to heal Joseph's wounded heart and mend it. And he also needs to change the heart of Joseph's brothers because they are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to be the foundation of a nation. And in order to start a nation... You need a group of people who are unified, who are willing to come together to accomplish a common goal or common purpose, and those who truly care about each other and love one another and lay down their lives for one another. Well, that was certainly not the case earlier on in Joseph's life. They were disunified. They sold Joseph into slavery. They could care less about Joseph's feelings, their father's feelings, and all that, and God had to change some hearts if they were going to be the foundation of a nation. And God is still looking for that same combination today. That's the group that God looks for when he starts a church. Now again, a nation or a church might not sustain that, but in order to start it and in order to lay the foundation, you got to start with a group of people who are willing to be unified and come together for a common goal and a common purpose and learn to work together and, and who truly care about each other and love each other and are willing to lay down their lives for each other. God's still looking for that today. And so in Genesis 43, there's some unfinished business. Because all that God accomplished that we looked at last week in Genesis 42, not there yet. It's a process, right? We understand that. When God changes our heart, it takes time. Hearts don't change normally in the blink of an eye. It can happen, but most of the time, changed hearts take time. It's a process that we go through. And you're certainly seeing that here. And God is certainly willing to take the time and have the patience to work with people in order to change their hearts. So you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 43 that the famine has not let up. The famine is still very severe in the world, which is in a sense then going to force Jacob to reconsider his previous position. What was his previous position? we got to go back, and when we go back to Egypt to get more food, we got to take Benjamin with us. And Jacob said, no way, Benjamin, there's no way Benjamin's gone. I've already lost one son, Joseph, and now Simeon is there in Egypt. I'm not losing any more, especially, obviously, from Jacob's point of view, my two favorites, Joseph and Benjamin. But... We all understand this, too. Over time, they started looking around in their houses and started to see the grain diminish, and they started looking around and started seeing the food in the pantry getting smaller and smaller, and and pretty soon they were looking around and there wasn't much food left. Sometimes God will use drastic measures to move people in the direction that he wants us to go, and that is certainly true here because he had some unfinished business that he needed to do in the hearts of both Joseph and his brothers and even their father Jacob and all of that, and he needed to get them to go back to Egypt once again. So you see there in chapter 43, verse 1, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had finished eating the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Okay, return. Buy us a little bit more food. Now, he's not willing to let Benjamin go yet, but he's looking around going, We don't have much food left. Soon we're going to starve. So we need to go back to Egypt. Notice then in verse 3, Judah steps forward as the representative. And this is key here. You begin to see certain ones in the family step forward into leadership. We've certainly seen Joseph do that, right? Ascend to a, a leadership position. And now we see Judah being sort of the spokesperson, not the oldest, but the spokesperson for the group. And, and Judah steps up here and says to his father, the man solemnly warned us, verse 3, you're not going to see his face unless basically Benjamin is there. If you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy food. In a sense, Judah's saying, I'm not wasting my time going to Egypt when I know that if I go without Benjamin, we're not getting a thing. And remember, this is no short trip. This is a several-month trip, Right? But he says, if you will not send him, we won't go down there because the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, or Jacob said, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had one more brother? Notice something about Jacob here. He's pretty self-absorbed. All he cares about is how it's affecting him, even though his family's about ready to starve. And he's blaming his sons for, in a sense, revealing the fact that they had a younger brother. So again, Judah said, look, we weren't the ones offering this information to this ruler in Egypt. He asked us questions. And even that should have started to provide some kind of, like, pause or or flag to go up in their heads. Like, why is this ruler in Egypt who could care less, you know, e- Egyptians could care less about Hebrews, why is this ruler in Egypt so interested in our family and what's going on with our family? The, you know, there's that, right? So they replied, verse 7, the man questioned us thoroughly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And notice what these questions were revealing, too they were revealing the yearning of Joseph's heart. Because though Joseph had been hurt by his family, he truly cared about his family. He did not want to see them starve. That's why he sent them back with the grain and the money and all of that last week. And he he truly was hoping that that his father was still alive, that he would get to see his father someday, and he was hoping really hoping that he could be reunited with his brother Benjamin, because remember, his brother Benjamin is really his own true full brother. The others are half-brothers, you see, different mothers. Benjamin and Joseph are the only ones that are full brothers. Then Judah said to his father, Israel, send the boy with me, And we will go immediately. I'm willing to go, but I cannot go without Benjamin. Then we will live and not die, we and you and our little ones. And then notice what Judah does. And this is, again, hints that Judah, as well as some of the other brothers, are starting to have a change of heart because you can start to see in what they say and what they're willing to do that they're willing to do things that they were not willing to do 20 years ago when they sold Joseph into slavery. He says, I myself pledge security for him. You may hold me liable. If I do not bring him back to you and place him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. What does it mean to pledge security? It means one who stands in for another and takes the penalty if necessary. Now think about that. Because centuries later, there's going to come another out of the tribe of Judah who's going to ultimately do that for all of us. He's going to stand in our stead He's going to take our penalty for us. He's going to take what you and I deserve, and he's going to take it on himself. It's a beautiful picture of self-sacrificial love. Taking the penalty upon oneself. Pledging security. And then I love the practicality of Judah. In verse 10, he says, if we had not delayed, Father, we could have traveled there and back twice by now. You've just sort of been spinning here. You are hesitating. You are reluctant. We could have had food by now if you wouldn't have just been so hesitant and reluctant to move. Now God's made it to where it's a desperate situation and you've got to do something to save your family as the head of it. The point I want to make to us and how we can apply this is there are certainly times in our life where as we follow God, we need to be cautious and we need to be careful and not go too quickly into something. But there's also times in our life where God, like here, has said, hey, over there, I've provided for you. You don't have to be starving here. You don't have to be in this situation. I've already provided for you. You just have to be willing to go, and we still hesitate. We're still reluctant, even though God says, over there's my provision, because many times, just like with Jacob, we can be stubborn, even though there's where the provision is, or we can be slow in, in reacting. And, and that was Jacob's issue here, you see. He was hesitating and reluctant, even though God clearly showed them, I'm providing for you. It's just in a place you don't want to go. And sometimes that's the way it is with us. It's like God's provision is, is over in this place or with this person or whatever, and he's already provided but we're unwilling to go to the place of God's provision or go to the person that God provides for us or go to this or that, that area where God says, I've already provided for you. You're just stuck. Move. Go. And that's what Judah is trying to get his father to see. Then their father, Israel, said to them, verse 11, If it must be so, then do this. <laughs> Finally, we see Jacob relenting, and he sets forth a plan and prays to God for God's mercy and protection. He is finally placing his hope and trust in God. But also notice this. Putting our trust in God doesn't mean that we should not do our part. And that is something very important that we see Jacob and his family doing here. We do our part acting prudently and wisely. And then we trust God for all the rest. That's the way God would have us to live. So notice what they do. Jacob says, take some of the best products of the land in your bags. Take a gift down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, pistachios, almonds, I'm getting hungry here. Take double the money with you. You must take back the money that was returned in the, mon- in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And take your brother too. Except for the brother, this is common protocol at that time in history. This is what you did. You did not go to an official in a foreign land empty-handed. It was going to cost you something in order to receive from the official, you see. So they're doing their part, and God would say the same thing. Look, do what you can do, and then trust me for what you can't do. Trust me for all the rest. And that then comes in verse 14, where Jacob says, May the sovereign God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, God the All-Sufficient One, may He grant you mercy, Favor before the man so that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I lose my children, I lose them. And folks, this is not Jacob expressing fatalistic resignation. This is surrender to God. Because everything here, and Jacob knows it, everything is at stake at this point. Let's not miss this. Everything is at stake. The covenant that God made with Abraham is at stake here. The promises that God made to Abraham, they're all at stake. Because if something happens to Jacob's family, that's it. That's it. And God said, I got you. You just got to trust me that I've got you. And Jacob's finally going, okay, God. This is what you promised my grandfather. These are the same promises you reiterated to my father Isaac. These are the same promises you reminded me of. Finally, God, I'm putting it all in your hands. It's important. Because all of us throughout our lives are going to get to seasons and places in our life where that's exactly what God will demand of us. Everything else is sort of closed off, and and God is going to say, do you trust me or not do you trust me not put it all in my hands do your part but put the rest in my hands knowing that i will be true to my covenant i will be true to my promises as we've sung about tonight i I will be faithful you can count on me you can rely upon me you can depend upon me i am the almighty god the all-sufficient one And, and the other thing i want to point out this is so ironic here unlike us, they did not know the man that they were going to stand before, right? If they would have known, you mean this is Joseph? This is our bro? This is my son? He's the guy that we're going to ask for this favor of? You know, now obviously under the circumstances they might have thought, well, he's going to lop all of our heads off. But in a good way, my point is this if you knew how that person in authority really thought of you, if you knew their heart towards you, it would change in the way you approach and what you ask of them and what you expect of them. And I say that because that's how we should be to our God. If we knew how much he loves us, if we knew how much he cared for us, how true he was to his promises, then, as Hebrews said, would we not more confidently and boldly approach the throne of grace and ask for whatever we need in our times of need? Because we know the one that we're going to be standing before, and he's more than willing to help us at any time. Verse 13, or 15, excuse me. So the men took these gifts, they took double the money with them, along with Benjamin, and they hurried down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin, and I don't believe this was a close contact. I think Joseph was looking out of his window. Joseph isn't going to actually meet them for a few verses yet, but he sees them approaching. He sees them coming, and he sees that Benjamin, his full brother, is with him, and he says then to his servant who was over his household, "'Bring these men to the house, slaughter an animal, "'prepare it, for the men will eat with me at noon.'" Doesn't that remind you of the reaction of the prodigal's father when he sees the prodigal son coming back? He's like, let's, let's slaughter the best of everything and let's have a feast and let's celebrate. That, that was Joseph. It's a time of celebration, you see. The man did just as Joseph said. He brought the, brought the men into Joseph's house. But notice when they came into Joseph's house, What was the reaction of Joseph's brothers? Fear, dread when they were brought into Joseph's house. Like, uh uh-oh, what's going to happen to us? We're in for it now. I understand this. Many of you have heard the stories of me, especially in elementary school and middle school. and, And there were times where I would get a note through my teacher, Jeff Royce, yes, ma'am? The principal would like to see you. Oh, jeez. Here we go again. I would always think when the principal wanted to see me, it must be something bad. Guilty conscience, maybe? Because here's the deal. It wasn't always bad. And, And I bring that up because sometimes that's how we are. It's like, Something good happens to us, and we're almost like looking around like, "Uh uh-oh, now what's going to happen? Like we can't believe that something so wonderful, too good to be true, undeserved, unexpected, like, oh, what's going to happen now? We got something like that, then wait for the next You know, we get like that in our headspace, right? That's where Joseph's brothers were. We're being brought in because of the money that was returned in our sacks last time. Finally caught up with us. He wants to capture us, make us slaves, take our donkeys. What does an Egyptian care about their donkeys? I mean, their, their reasoning is so, like, you know, crazy, but that's the way our, again, sometimes when we start talking to ourselves. And you know why they were feeling this way? Well, one, they hadn't resolved some things, which God is still working on. And the other thing is, they are great examples And we have them today, and even sometimes we struggle with this. We don't understand or we're not receptive to grace. You see, all of us, if if we're going to become Christians, we have to be willing to receive grace, what we don't deserve. So if we're in that place where it's like we just can't accept things that We don't deserve. Being a Christian is going to be really hard because the whole Christian life is everything God gives to us is not deserved. And then if we're in that space where we don't buy into grace because we feel like we've got to earn everything that we get, you're never going to earn God's love. You're never going to earn salvation. You're never going to merit anything with God. So again, the whole Christian life is out the window if it's not operated within the environment of grace. And so many even Christians struggle throughout their whole Christian life with receiving grace. Now, obviously, we've got to be givers of grace, too. Those who receive are also responsible to give. But we've got to learn to receive grace and understand the concept of grace because everything God does for us is not deserved. And if we're not willing to receive it and we feel unworthy of it, then we're going to miss out on many things that God wants to bless us with because somehow we think, I got to work for that. I got to earn that. I got to merit that. And that's where these men were. Part of why you're going to see a celebration at the end of this chapter, part of it, is not just because of the reunion that's taking place here. It's because in an environment of grace, there's joy. In an environment of legalism and law and rules, the joy is sucked out of churches, sucked out of lives, sucked out of rooms. In an environment of grace where we recognize grace, where we recognize that we've been given grace and granted grace and we live in grace and we breathe grace and all of that, there is joy and there is celebration because it cultivates this heart of gratefulness and thanksgiving because we realize that all we have and all that we will ever have is totally undeserved, but thank you, God, for it anyway. So here's their explanation to Joseph's servant, verse 20. My Lord, we did indeed come down the first time to buy food, but when we came to the place where we spent the night, we opened our sacks, each of us found his money, the full amount in the mouth of the sack. We've returned it. We brought additional money with us to buy food. We don't know who put the money in our sacks. Guilt, guilt, guilt. They just feel, and again, they weren't, they hadn't done anything wrong that time. That was the test, but they just like, oh. Oh. Please believe us. We're we're innocent of this. And I love the response of Joseph's servant. Can I tell you? I believe that because, again, we see the influence and impact of Joseph's life in Egypt, I believe that this Egyptian servant became a believer in Jehovah. And he wasn't the only one that became a believer in Jehovah because of Joseph. He says to the... Joseph's brothers, everything is fine. Basically, in the Hebrew, be at peace. All is well. Don't, don't be all upset. It's all been taken care of. Notice what he says. He says, don't be afraid. Oh, how often does God tell his people, don't be afraid, don't live in fear? There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Notice what the servant says. Your God, Elohim, the true God who rules the universe and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Wow, I love that. Given you riches, a secret hidden storehouse. Ooh, I love that. You know, God has given us riches beyond belief. Many times, even as Christians, we measure our wealth and our riches simply by material and physical things. But God tells us in His Word, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I have seated you with Christ in the heavenly realms. As we saw all about, He's given us a treasure, the very light and glorious knowledge of God. within us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the church, the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters. He's given us the word. He's given us the ability to be able to worship him. He's given us access to him in prayer at any time, about anything, anywhere. I mean, over and over, we could count our blessings. We have treasure in our sacks. The servant said, I had your money. And then after that, he releases Simeon to them. And I'm sure that was a great reunion there, that Simeon, who had been in prison now for a while, at least several months, now was reunited with his brothers. Verse 24, the servant in charge brought the men into Joseph's house, treating them like royalty, he gave them water, washed their feet, gave food to their donkeys, got their gifts ready for Joseph's arrival at noon, and they heard that they were going to have a meal there. Can you imagine? These are basically, he- you know, Hebrews from the land of Canaan who are been suffering in a famine, and now they're basically in the palace of Egypt at the ruler's house, and they're getting ready to have a meal, they're probably thinking, what in the world is going on here? Listen, when you follow God, God is full of unexpected surprises and blessings along the way. Things that we never saw coming, and all of a sudden we get to experience them. That's grace. When Joseph came home, verse 26, they presented him with the gifts they had brought inside and they bowed down to the ground before him. Again, fulfilling Joseph's dream and also reminding us of God's faithfulness to his word. It happened just as God said. He asked them how they were doing about their welfare, their health, and their prosperity. Again, he he shows interest. He says, is your aging father well? The one you spoke about, is he still alive? Your servant, our father, is well. And they replied, he is still alive. And then once again, they bowed down in humility. Over and over again, Joseph is seeing the revelation and the dream that God gave him prove true and reliable. And then here is such a touching moment. When Joseph looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother whom you told me about? And they said, then he said, May God be gracious to you my son and then Joseph hurried out for he was overcome by affection for his brother and was at the point of tears so he went to his room and wept there the word affection means to be passionate for and tender-hearted toward Joseph always had a special place in his heart for his brother Benjamin He and Benjamin had a special connection. He had a deep, and you can imagine, after almost 20 years, they had been apart, and now he sees his younger brother in person, obviously overcome with emotion, not afraid to weep, not afraid to express his emotion. But then he washed his face, came out, composed himself, put himself, pulled himself together, as we said, and said, set out the food. And they set a place for him, a separate place for his brothers, another for the Egyptians who were eating with them, because the Egyptians are not able to eat with the Hebrews, for the Egyptians think it's disgusting to do so. Oh, folks, we think prejudice is a, it, it's always been there. I mean, the Egyptians literally thought it was an abomination to be near Hebrews. Now think about that. That should have also been another pause. Here's this Egyptian official who's willing to be close to us, who's willing to sit down at a table and eat with us while the Egyptians are sort of separated apart. should have said something to them. They sat before him. And this is an important point here. They sat in his presence as a privilege, arranged by order of birth, beginning with the firstborn and ending with the youngest. And the men looked at each other in astonishment because you know why? God is a God that will leave us dumbfounded and speechless every once in a while. He's a God of wonder and awe and amazement. And all we have to do is follow God long enough to realize some of the amazing things that only God can do. Can you imagine? We're sitting here at this ruler's table in his house and we're feasting. I want to begin wrapping it up for just the next few moments with this. When you study the life of Joseph, remember that Joseph's life portrays a type of Christ in many ways. He provided. And here he is opening up his table, and he's inviting his brothers who don't deserve, humanly, to eat at his table They don't deserve his kindness. They don't deserve his goodness. They don't deserve all that he's done for them, and yet he's invited them to sit at their table. And what a privilege it is. And I want you to think then future, because this is also a beautiful picture of one day Jesus himself is going to sit with each of us at the table in glory and sit down and eat with us. He's even going to serve us. Wow, what a privilege. And every day you and I have the privilege of sitting down at the king's table and feasting because like what was going on in the world, what the world offers to us today will only leave us famished. We will never be fulfilled and satisfied by what the world offers us, but when we're willing to sit down at our table before the Lord in his presence, and what a privilege it is, he will feed us like no one or nothing else can, and we will be satisfied and fulfilled like nothing else can do for us. And that's what Joseph's brothers were experiencing. Can you imagine? They were probably thinking, What did we do to deserve the honor of sitting here with basically the ruler of the world? I mean, only Pharaoh was greater, but Pharaoh at this point, and Pharaoh even says it, he was just sort of a figurehead. Joseph was running the show in Egypt. He was the ruler. So they were sitting before the ruler for all practical purposes of the world. These are 12 Canaanite Hebrews who have now went from famine to a feast through the grace of God. Question for you. Who's the greatest person you ever shared a meal with in your life up to this point? Who's the person that you've sat at a table with and thought, I I would never have this experience. That's where Joseph's brothers are. And they're just dumbfounded, like, wow, what did I do to deserve such a blessing? He gave them portions of food, though, that he set before them, but notice what he did. Another little test. I'm going to give my brother Benjamin five times more food than the rest of them. Because I want to see. They resented me. They resented the favor that my father showed me. I want to see if I show my brother Benjamin favor, are they going to resent him like they resented me? Doesn't look like it. In fact, notice, they pretty much kept drinking and partying until they had too much to drink, and the Bible says they all got drunk. Now, I'm not condoning that in any way. But what I am saying is this, at the beginning of this chapter, these brothers were in a famine and by the end of this chapter, through the grace of God and through God working through someone like Joseph who received God's grace and therefore gave God's grace back, they're now feasting from a famine to a feast and God wants us to understand the same thing. Instead of trying to survive off of the worldly things that will only leave us more hungry and unfulfilled and unsatisfied, God says to us, sit down with me at my table. Come into my presence and feast with me every day and let me fill you up on what i have prepared for you god is still working on hearts and next week we're finally going to see that the heart surgery that god is performing on all of them is finally complete so i hope you'll come back next week and join us as we go into chapter 44. let's pray father we thank you tonight that we've been reminded, Lord, of just the power of grace. How, Lord, when we live in grace, when we receive grace, when we give grace, there is joy and there is celebration and there's gratefulness and there's thanksgiving and there's praise and there's worship. But God, if we ever go down that road of law and rules and legalism, of merit, and having to earn anything with you. God, that's that's a road that just sucks the joy and the peace and the life out of any church, any ministry, any life, anything. As even Paul said, said the Spirit gives life. But the letter of the law kilts. So, Lord, I pray tonight that we would be reminded of the power of grace and that, God, we might just continue to be receivers of your grace and dispensers of your grace, God, so that we might live and create around us that environment of joy and gratitude and thankfulness and celebration. God, use our time of worship tonight and our time in your word to exalt you and to bring glory to you, the one that we do not deserve to have in our life, the one who bestows on us more blessings than we could ever imagine, the one that allows us to sit at his table every day as a privilege, and yet, God, it's because you love us so very much. So, Lord, may we be reminded of all this. May we go to sleep tonight with this on our minds. May we wake up tomorrow with this on our minds. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.